loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming John Sardella. John is the author of three books, A Journey Without a Map, How to Start a Successful Youth Lacrosse Program, and L is for Lacrosse, an ABC book. John's professional career was spent in the Liverpool, New York School District. He was a teacher for 16 years and a principal for 15 years. He's now retired and enjoys spending his time riding, golfing, and being with family and friends. He lives in Liverpool, New York, and Naples, Naples, Florida. His kids are all grown, but John still sees them often. And you can find him at John Sardella, S-A-R-D-E-L-L-A.com. Welcome, John. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for having me on today. It's my pleasure. Um, I, I always have a soft spot for people who've had some somewhat similar experiences to mine, mine living with a spouse who's ill for a long, long period of time. And, uh, and so I revisited lots of my own memories reading your book. Of course, I'm, I'm almost 25 years past when my sweetie died, but um, still very familiar. You don't forget. Yes, you don't. You don't. And, uh, you know, I'm three years out since my wife passed away. But what I found was that I was ready for it this past year to write this book because I really thought I saw it as a cathartic experience. I didn't realize it when I first wrote the book that it was going to become a story about me and my journey for the last 10 years with my wife and after my wife's passing. But what I was initially going into was just writing stories and stories that I had as an experience as a coach, as an educator, as a person, and stories just that the way I connected with people and my experience with others. And as I worked with my publisher, it came, we came to the conclusion that the story truly was connected to me and I was the common thread through everything. And <laughs> isn't and that along, the truth in life? <laughs> <laughs> along with my wife and her story, because a lot of the stories fit into the book that you read, whether it was about the connections with a friend or former players or a coach, whether it was just our friends in general, a lot of those stories were threaded throughout the book. And I think it, it came out to be, I think, um, a unique writing that I think can help a lot of people. And, and what's interesting is, you know, having, having uh, done this show now for about six and a half years, um, it is so common for me to hear I couldn't find uh, any books that helped, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, of course, given that I, and I guess that was uh, a bit true of me, too, although I had a couple of people, I had one friend in particular who lost her spouse a year before I did. And so she had a couple of books to throw my way, um, but it seems almost like a an aspect of grief that we can't find the resources at first. Well, you can't find the resources at first, but I think upon writing this and releasing this book and connecting with people like you and other people who've done podcasts and interviews and people who've reached out to me, 
it's amazing how many people are out there with the same story. And those, those connections that I've been able to make has been very helpful for me because I've been able to talk about it and the people I've talked about it like you understand it. It's a real conversation. It's a real con and, and opens up kind of the deepest ways of, of conversing in my view, because if we can talk about this, right, <laughs> we can talk about most anything. I, and it's true, stories in common, but um, also pretty unique at the yeah. same time. Uh, you know, we all have our own way to similar things. So let's talk a bit just about uh, you and your wife. Um, you were together sometime quite a while before cancer entered your life. How, yeah. how long, maybe 20 20 years? Or? Well, we were together upon her death 30 years. We dated for two years and then we got married and we were married for over 27 years, 27 and a half years. And altogether, we were physically together for 30 years. And um, my wife was just a special human being. She came from a great family with a great set of morals and values, um, very deeply uh, spiritual. Um, she came with, um, uh, you know, just the understanding of what family, how important family was, how important our friends were and those relationships, but also the importance of making sure that you prioritize and put the right things uh, in the forefront as you live. And my wife and I had a special relationship. She made me stronger as I try to make her stronger. And as we grew over the 30 years that we were together, I do believe upon her death that we really became one and we were really connected. And upon her death was the closest we had ever been. And mm -hmm. it was because we just took the core values, the, the importance of our spirituality, the importance of our family and our friends and doing the right thing and making sure we kept the focus on the kids. And as we did that, we were able to really grow and be very strong together. She was a, um, an educator. She was a teacher herself. She started off in the world of education down in the Bronx for two years, where her family was from, uh, right outside the Bronx in Westchester County. And she then came up here and she taught for a couple of years. And then we started a family and she was home for 10 years with our children. And upon our youngest child entering kindergarten was when she went back to work and she became a teacher at one of the local schools where she taught before at Soul Road Elementary School. And she taught there pretty much until her passing. And um, she was a great teacher, a third grade teacher. The kids loved her. Uh, I know that, it, you know, we can talk about some of the things that happened um, upon remembering her and the connection with some other students that she had. But she was just a wonderful person, a wonderful mother, a wonderful sister, a wonderful wife, a wonderful friend. And everything about her was just genuine and just true to who she was. There's not a bad thing to say about my wife. She was just a great person who made me better. And I don't know if you'd agree, but uh, uh, one of the people we spent a long time, a, a lot of time with when my wife was sick, Stephen Levine, he, he would say to us more than once, you have the best of the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and yep. it sounds as if that would have been true for you two as well, that there wasn't anything wrong except that she had cancer. And, <laughs> you know, and, and you're right, uh, and it was it, the best, and it was the worst. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Well, let's let's hear a little bit from your book. Maybe you could share something from the from the um, beginning of the book about your own grie grieving process. Well, what I have here is I have a chapter, um, just an excerpt from chapter two, the power of yellow. And, and my buddy who's a doctor, Mike Lacombe, and how important it was for him to say, don't be a victim to the disease. So this is the writing that I'm going to share, okay? Absolutely. Dr. Mike Lacombe, who I call La, was one of those close friends I thanked when I eulogized Margaret. And for good reason. He taught both of us a lot, namely not to be a victim. I met La when we played basketball together in middle school, and we've stayed close ever since. In adulthood, he became a radiation oncologist. This made him not only a good lifelong friend, but also our guide throughout Margaret's cancer journey. He gave us advice about what to expect at visits, tips on what questions to ask, and perspective on navigating the journey. A journey which, as I mentioned at the beginning of the book, he was the first to call one without a map. We'd send him the scans and other information from her doctor and he'd double check them. Often he just affirmed what Dr. Wong had said. His empathetic agreement with and confidence in the plan helped immensely. La told us that many people hear the word cancer and immediately become a victim of the disease. He encouraged Margaret to take the opposite approach. You control it, he told her. You have the ability to control your life and to move on. That advice meant so much to us that I even mentioned it in my eulogy. It guided us. La was important to us because he not only was there for the cancer part, but he was there for the life part too. Two months before we traveled to Boston for treatment, when we didn't quite know what to expect, La invited us and the kids to vacation with his family at the Outer Banks. To this day, the kids and I will never forget that five-day stay. It allowed us to forget our troubles for a bit. Through Margaret's journey, La served as an important source for us. There were times I had very honest conversations with him about what he expected to happen next. He kept a positive outlook, but he also knew he'd tell, I, he would tell us the truth. Even if it was hard, what he said was gospel to us. And we lived off his input because he had, we had 100% trust in him. So when he said, don't be a victim, we took that advice to heart. We adopted that attitude and, and sustained it moving forward. There are some really important things in that. And the one that stands out that I'd just like to talk with you about is, uh, I think often people uh, misinterpret including people who are facing cancer, the idea of the positive outlook. I like that part of his positive outlook was truthfulness and, re and reality, right? You, yeah, didn't, you didn't have to avoid anything to have a forward motion going on. Um, you what, know, I, what he did, Cheryl, was he, he always made sure he was my friend first. And we've talked about this a number of times. And he was a person who had the uh, medical knowledge and understanding, but he didn't want to be our doctor. He made sure that he was our friend first. And as he shared, he always kept an unbelievable positive attitude of like, okay, they're changing it, but now this is what they can do. And there was never a point where he actually said, ah, there's nothing more that can be done. 
It was always that what's next. Okay. We can get this, we can do it. And you know, it was, you know, it's, it's the quality of the medical profession to always look at the next steps to be able to try to help others and to help people through one of the most difficult things they're ever going to go through and to try to keep that positive aspect and that positive outlook. And that's what he did for us. And when I say he's a close friend, I mean, he's one of my best friends and he became one of my best friends who was one of my wife's best friends and who were one of my kids' closest friends too, and him and his family. And it just was um, somebody we truly could rely on to really help us understand more than anything else. And then when when it became clear, you know, uh, one thing I think about a lot and uh, and kind of uh, encounter in other people is, um, you know, whether, um, how do I want to put it? Um, I guess whether you can go too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so I wonder how he handled it when uh, she was reaching actually the end. Um, was he also able to acknowledge that and, and you, you know what? stay on board with you? He never once said, he never once said to me that, hey, she's going to pass. He, he never said anything like a timeline or anything like that. But in my conversations was when I was getting emotional and I would talk to him about it, he would just, he would never contradict what I'm saying. He would never, ever not say that that may not happen. But he always came back with, hey, you know, I'm here for you. Uh, let's have a beer together. Let's, um, you know, sit and talk, uh, things like that. But he, mm. but he took the approach of never, ever affirming like, hey, you have a timeline here and it's going to happen sooner than later. It was more me saying that, feeling that, and him saying, okay, well, let's see what's happening here. And still try to take the perspective of, hey, there's still hope. So, you know, he was a friend who I could call him in a minute and he'd be right next to my side with a beer and sitting down with me and talking. And I knew I could rely on that. And if what it, as we have a real conversation because of our experiences, he was able to have a real conversation with me because of his job and the experience he had from the medical profession and the understanding, you know, in the long run, he talked about how this truly helped him too, because he made, it helped him to understand his patient and the anxiety they're going through and understanding how to work with them better and be more uh, empathetic and to be more that person for his people that he has to go through on a daily, on a daily basis. But think about a doctor not only for one person, for multiple people and multiple families that are going through this. And that's where his perspective came from. But I do believe this personal experience helped him. And he even said this to me, become a better doctor. It, it occurs to me that what one of the things he had, uh, maybe in general, but certainly with, with you and Margaret, is good timing. You know, knowing when to when to throw information at someone, when to offer solutions, and when to just listen. 
Um, that, that's one of the primary skills it takes to really show up for someone, isn't it? Well, and I think the timing for us, uh, you're spot on. I think you're, uh, well, he got it. He understood it. Um, but I also think it was the time of his, his career in, you know, here was a person who was, you know, 15 years into his career who had the experience and the understanding and the know-how and, and went through this experience for seven more years with us. And so you have a person who I think hit that critical time of his own profession to be able to say, hey, I know enough now to really pay attention and to be able to take my experience and this is what I can do to help others. So I do think the timing, not only of how he worked with us, but the timing of his career and his life and knowing the importance of, you know, this is my friend first, but I know I can help him out medically too. Well, that's, uh, I think a lot because I've worked a lot with cancer. I've done cancer support groups. Many of the clients I see are, are facing cancer or helping someone who is, and there, you cannot underestimate the impact of how doctors relate to you. Mm -hmm. oh. uh, I mean, it makes such an important uh, stamp on the experience. And uh, having someone in your corner like that, hopefully some of your other doctors were also empathic. But um, I know for myself, that would be, you know, number one requirement, someone who can relate. So you, you, to deepen that in him is something that came out of this for you to have hey, contributed to his, his empathy in that way. Absolutely. And I think um, as you allude to that, we were very fortunate with the two primary doctors that we worked with. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Chan in, at Dana-Farber was fantastic. She had a great bedside manner about her and she got it. And Dr. Wong, Benny Wong from our local um, uh, hematology group and oncology group uh, in the Syracuse area was just wonderful. You know, he sat with us and he would talk to us and he would cry with us sometimes, but he was just such a, a great person. And, and Margaret really admired him and respected him a great deal as I did too. And it really helped with the journey. So you alluded a little bit to uh, the ways in which you got closer in in that time and i wonder if you could say a little more about that because uh boy it really gets your attention doesn't it yeah living next to the possibility of you know death really gets your attention uh as we're as we're in this moment of uh coronavirus uh, getting a lot of people's attention <laughs> but um <laughs> living next to that so much what would you say changed between you? Well, I think the biggest thing was um, it, prior to her experience of, of being diagnosed in 2006, you know, I, I went to a Catholic church with my wife for ever since we, ever since we were married back in 1989. But in that Catholic church, we, um, you know, as I went, I was Protestant. And then in 2006, I decided to convert over to Catholicism. And I did that because the, the strong spirituality, I, I always had, um, uh, religion was important in my life, but when I met my wife and I, and I lived it with my wife, I understood the power of the religion and the sp power of spirituality. That's how I like to classify it. 
And by me changing over to um, to be a Catholic, I really um, embraced the uh, mass more. I embraced the experience more and I prayed more and I worked with God more. And that was important to me. But I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would have done that if I didn't have my wife with me. Um, if I, you know, Margaret was the right person for me to make me better, especially spiritually, because she had such a strong faith. Her faith came into play, especially as she was going down the most difficult parts and the relationships that she built with her priest. And we had a special relationship together with the priest. Margaret also taught me, because I feel that she taught me more than I taught her, to be honest with you, but how to be selfless and more selfless. I always felt good about my, my experience as a professional and helping others because I was an educator for so long and I was a coach and that was my way to help others and make a difference. And she taught me patience. She taught me um, selflessness to give to others. She taught me just um, a kinder, gentler way because there's times where I would want to do it almost immediately and be like, why aren't these people doing it? You know, blah, blah, blah. And she'd be like, it's okay, John, you know, they're going to be there. You know, it's not going to go away. And, and she taught me a lot of those things, which I do practice every day today. And I've changed as a person. And when I say we become one, she made me better to be um, closer to her because of those qualities. But at the same time, I try to give her strength and understanding of working with others and saying, hey, be there, you know, maybe that person needs a little help, send a little note or something like that. And um, we, we always did things together and we were close together. And that's how we really grew together. It also sounds as if, uh, would it be fair to say that before this, you were an action guy? Um, I've, I've always been an action guy, <laughs> and so but, but in, a, in the term of leadership, uh -huh. um, you know, I'm I'm not always the one who says, "Hey, let's go out there and we're going to run a marathon." I'm not, you know, I'll run two miles, but I'm not going to run a marathon. <laughs> but but uh, you know, in leadership, I always had the style of I was an upfront leader, and I was for a long, long time. And she taught me how to be a little more patient with that leadership. Which there's, uh, it's paradoxical that the thing that could create the most impatience, the illness of someone you love, also is the place where you, at least for me, I, f I feel I became a much, much better able to accept the moment as it is. I agree with you 100%. Through, through just having to live with it until you kind of, you kind of adjust to, oh, I'm not in control of everything. <laughs> Not in control of everything and also taking things day by day. And One moment day. by moment sometimes, huh? Yes, and moment by moment. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that, that every day you just take the day that's given to you and you embrace that day and you worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. So, you know, I was raising kids when I was going through this and so were you. Yeah. Um, we we kind of went in the direction of um, as much truth as we could offer, and it sounds sounds as if uh, you did with the older ones, maybe not so much with the younger ones. But how was that to navigate parenting in um, the experience? Because it must have shown that that she was ill. 
Yes, uh, it, you know, as I allude in the book is that our oldest one, Megan, she was a junior going to be a senior in high school at the time. And Megan was the, the true leader of the children and, you know, the three kids. And I relied on her more, you know, she was more mature. Um, the conversations that I, I would have conversations with Megan that her mother wouldn't have with Megan. And, and you know, I, I relied on her as to be the leader for the others. And I usually cha- shared a little more and she took that responsibility on because that's who she is. Um, Megan sometimes is that kind of empath type of person who will take everybody mm-hmm. else's things and try to help others. But people really feel very comfortable to talk to her about it. Harry was more of the middle of the road because he was ninth going into 10th grade. And he was a person who, um, very sensitive, very close to his mother. And there, he, he was able to observe and he recognized a lot of things. So by the time I had the conversation with him, he knew what the conversation was about most of the time. Mm. And, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of those conversations, but I did it you know, I had to do it individually because I didn't want to bring Margaret into the fold, into the, some of those conversations because of the uh, emotionality of it. And, um, but Harry got it. And then Julia kind of, she was going sixth to seventh grade. She was living it with us. So she was watching it every day. The good thing is though, as the kids watched her, especially her first three, four years, she lived a normal life. She was working, she was working out every day. If you saw her, you never knew that she had cancer. But navigating through all of that, Margaret and I knew what she had because we had to go every other week to Dana-Farber. That's a five hour drive on a Friday go to a doctor's appointment, come back. The kids were left alone. We usually went for 24 hours and stayed at a friend's house Thursday night and then drove back to get back for dinner on Friday. And, you know, Margaret and I had those intense conversations in the car, but when we got home, we really try to protect the kids from it. And we try to be very careful of it. But we had to have a couple really tough conversations when it got very intense. And those conversations ended up being when things changed and it metastasized to the liver. And then, of course, upon her death, you know, just a week before she passed or two weeks. And those were very intense, a very emotional type of um, conversations that I wouldn't wish upon anybody, to be honest with you, because they are so emotional and so difficult to tell a young child. And, and, and yet, you know, all my kids are also grown now uh particularly the the oldest one who was 14 when uh when my wife died mm-hmm. um i i would say she's made the best of out of that mm-hmm. uh she's a little germ phobic but <laughs> <laughs> which has nothing to do with cancer but she has had some other losses that relate to germs but um she's very positive and she's very much uh you know live the life that's that's for you to live don't uh don't wait uh she's very impassioned but not anxious just you know hey may as well do it now kind of uh which i think is the best perhaps that one can take out of this. What would you say about what your kids have taken out of both both to good and ill? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that question because um, I really think that what my kids took out of it was exactly that. I think they do live more for the moment. They're willing to uh, 
uh, take on change. Um, you know, my oldest daughter has literally gone from New York City to Washington, D.C. to Atlanta and back to D.C. in the last two years, but lived in New York City for a long period of time. Uh, my son's living in Maryland now, and my youngest daughter is going to take a job in New York City once uh, all this coronavirus uh, gets done over and done with. And they've taken that step to say, hey, we're going to get out of, you know, the area where I grew up and I'm going to try to grow as a person and and understand life a little more and try to really spread my wings. And I love that about them. Well, what they also learned was they learned the importance of what's what's important. They learned they pri they prioritized the real things immediately and what's important in life. And they focus on those things. And like Julia, my youngest, she might focus a little more on the, the spiritual part where my other two are just practical and conversation and what they do. And when they see somebody full of drama, they're sort of like, what are they doing? You know, there's no need for that. Just live life and be good to each other. And Little so stuff I, tends to wash off, huh? Really fast. <laughs> really fast and and you know they don't have time for it and together as a group you know my me and my kids and now my oldest daughter's fiance the five of us get together and it's just always special and there's no nonsense we just have a great time together all the time and when we are together it's because we focus on what makes us happy and no nonsense along with that happiness I, I uh, feel compelled to kind of highlight some things that support, uh, make it a little easier to come by what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. For instance, um, a, a fairly low level of economic stress helps. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, a good relationship to start out with probably helps. Um, uh, support along the way. And, and along that line, I wonder if you would, share the part of the book about quality and not quantity in terms of the relationships outside of your family that supported you as a family. Absolutely. This is from chapter four, Connections, the player, the coach, and the friend. Quality, not quantity. Many people offered support after Margaret died. They constantly checked in to see how I was doing. After one month, I went back to work. The day-to-day -day routine helped me help my life maintain some normalcy. At the same time, people started to fade away. Every once in a while, I'd get a sympathy text from someone that said something like, I know it's tough, but I hope you are okay. Whenever I got expressions of sympathy like that, I thought to myself, screw that. I don't need sympathy. I need support. I needed people to be physically present. The people with me now are my family, closest childhood friends, fellow coaches, family friends, and a few others I've connected with. I don't need a lot of friends. I just need the right ones. The three connections I've described in this chapter run deep and demonstrate the value I place on quality. I'm not interested in listing every single person I know, but rather in reflecting on the worth of the powerfully meaningful connections in my life. It's ironic because I never would have experienced the strength of those relationships without going through this adversity. When you go through trials in life, you find out who your true friends are and the true connections you have. My philosophy is that the friendships and the connections I have may be fewer in number today than what I had five years ago. 
but they're more powerful now. My goal is to work every day to keep them stronger. I've, of course, experienced many times with people facing cancer or facing loss um, that certain people uh, fall away. Um, they, they just can't deliver what you need at that time and the relationship becomes uh, less critical. But that can also be painful at first uh, because often, I don't know if this is true of you, but often people you would have thought would uh, be physically present or show up in a, in a different kind of way, don't. Uh, were there disappointments like that or was it just kind of, uh, well, this is the way it is? Were you, you know, surprised, in other words, by who did and who didn't? I, I, I think I had a few disappointments, but as I grow, as I went through the last three years, I understood it more. One of the most common things I, in any conversation I've had with people who've gone through grief and gone through a loss like this, they've all said the same thing. They've all said that, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch the people who stay and to watch the people who go. Um, it surprised me at first because I really thought there were so going to be certain people that were going to reach out to me a little more. I, I used to do this, um, my, Margaret and I, and this is a part of understanding, and I wrote it in the book a little bit, but there was a, there was a time where we did a dinner club, and this dinner club with these four other couples, um, I, I thought maybe it would continue a little, I get an invite, but I wasn't even sure if I would go to the meals because I would be alone and it would bring back emotions and it would be very difficult. But what I found was the, you know, Margaret was the one who set that all up all the time. It gave me uh. an understanding of, you know what? The wives actually were the ones that were setting this up and the guys would just go and drink all the beer and wine. And you and you weren't really aware of that until uh, she wasn't there to do it, huh? It, absolutely. And so again, <laughs> you would have thought that you were right in there. <laughs> so you know, you definitely can laugh about it now because the fact that it made me understand the responsibility I had with that. And then I looked and I said, wow, think about the number of times that we'd go out to dinner with our, with other couples and people. And it was always the setup between the wives and we would follow along or I would say, Hey, Margaret, how about, you know, let's have a dinner with Rob and Dave or something like that. And then it would be set up and <laughs> before but, you even know it as if you, as if you, it just sort of magically happened. Huh? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the beginning was, wow, why isn't this happening? Why aren't these people reaching out? And then I came to an understanding of why. And it helped me a lot by understanding because I didn't want to paint those people in a bad light. I just wanted to make sure that I understood why. And I also found that the, I think the, the old adage of, you know, the, the women do share their emotions more than men do. And I have found some of that with some individuals where even with my closest buddies, you know, and I, they all read this book. I have some of them reached out immediately and some of them haven't said anything to me. Huh. And, and I'm like, okay, I've known you for 50 years, man. You got to help me out here a little bit. You know, you, you have to, you know, tell me, what do you think of this? Or what do you think of that? And um, 
very little is said, but then there are certain people like my buddy Lon and some of my other buddies who are more than willing to open up and talk about it. So that was another piece I had to understand. And writing this book has really helped me to have those deep conversations that I really do need mm -hmm. that does continue to help me every single day. And what I like about it, too, is when I have these conversations with people who understand it like yourself, it's that mentor-mentee conversation. And you're helping out the mentee, but the mentor gets so much out of it, too. And it's powerful. And I love that about it because I am able to help somebody, but at the same time, they're helping me. Well, and for myself anyway, and obviously this is <laughs> at the cornerstone of my life in a way, these, uh, you know, my current life, uh, when you help, there's something tremendously impactful about using a hard experience in the service of another person. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very redeeming, you know, for me anyway, making use of that experience since I didn't have a choice about... Uh, I didn't have any choice I was going to take about skipping it. I, I suppose there, I could have run away. I didn't, wasn't inclined to do that. But, um, but at, at the same time, though, Cheryl, you have the ability to say to the person who's going through a difficult situation, I understand, I get it. And when you say that to that person, it's amazing how they respond to that. And certain things that you're talking about, for instance, you know, people saying, um, I hope, I hope you're okay. That's kind of a dumb thing to say to someone in grief, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course you're not okay. You, you will be, or you intend to be. Well, but, but it says, I, I but know it sort tough. of says, yeah. it sort of says, it implies in a way, don't tell me how bad you're feeling. Mm -hmm. I hope you're okay. Mm -hmm. So there's also an aspect here of, uh, it's hard to know what to say if you haven't been through it and sure. experienced what some of those things can feel like through no, no intention, you know, not because people want to hurt you, but just because they don't understand the impact and are, and, and don't have good, um, good education about what does help. Well, what I find, too, is the uh, what amazes me is when people say, oh, you know, I, you know, I know you might be busy or they make the excuse for you, but it's really for themselves of coming over and being physically present or wanting to come over to the house. Um, one thing that I found was that the house that I own up in um, up in Syracuse, a lot of people don't come over here. And, and what they say to me is it just brings back too many memories. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I live those memories every single day. For you, huh? Hello. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but I find that there's a lot of people that will come up with an excuse that will say, you know, they put it back on me, but it's really the excuse for them. Well, the other thing about that uh, that comes to my mind is that in a way, I felt that, so I'm remarried. Uh, I, met, I met my current wife a couple of years after uh, my first wife died. Okay. And um, what happened in that is that I 
got exposed to the fact that other people's grief, I'd been immersed, I'd been doing it for a couple of years, right? Sure. I had moved, I had moved forward. It was still pretty soon, to be honest, but, but I had moved. Other people, not so much. Mm -hmm. And so there were people who really, it was a grief event for them, for me to connect with someone. Yes. Yes. Uh, their loss of her had stayed exactly where it was to begin with, or not quite exactly, but you, you know what I'm saying? So that's, they're avoiding when people say it hurts too much to come over, they're really avoiding their own grief, aren't they? You're, you're spot on with that. And the number of times that I've heard that with people has been amazing. And part of the reason for this book, once I got writing it, I was like, I'm going to be able to explain so much to people who never have asked or had never really understood the experience. And it's as simple as even some of her family members or friends and the number of people who said, wow, I really can't believe what you've gone through. But then all of a sudden had an understanding for themselves to be able to move forward. I truly believe that because I gave them permission in the book that, hey, it's okay to talk to me, you know. We can do this. <laughs> yes. You know, in and, fact, it's prefer it's it's preferred. That exactly, exactly. And so what I find is exactly what you said, and I'm so glad you brought that up because in all my other conversations and interviews that I've had, nobody has brought this up. And I can't believe how much people get stuck in their own way. And I wish I, this book, and I'm hoping that this book helps those people to see the forest through the trees. You know, I hope they get the opportunity to say, hey, it's okay. I can have the conversation. She, I had 30 great years with my wife, but I have to keep moving forward, but I'll never forget her. And you don't forget those memories. And I think people feel if you move on and you move forward, they think, oh, are you going to forget who the person was? Oh my Lord, there's no can't, way. Can't even, I can't even imagine. In fact, I've run into people who, well, here's the common experience I have. Someone lost a parent as a child, let's say. Mm -hmm. And uh, moving on meant never talking about that person, mm -hmm. uh, kind of pretending like that was all over, which of course, before a loss, it's the worst thing we can imagine. And then after a loss, people imagine it shouldn't affect us. So that's crazy. <laughs> but um, that's what's damaging. It's the lack of processing. Yes. You know, people come to to have that process they didn't get to have. Well, you know, I, it, it, I, I'm so happy you brought this up because of the fact that I, I met somebody, um, a, a gentleman who I ended up uh, having lacrosse in common with, and he shared with me that, you know, his father died when he was young. He was about 20 years old. And for 40 years, you know, he's in the 60s now, he, he never talked about it. And he talked about that. And he actually said to me, I wish I had this book for my father 40 years ago, you know, when my mom died, because it, I think it would have helped him through not talking about it and being able to share and to get through his grief. And I've heard that from a number of people. Uh, the conversation just never took place. And it's almost you move forward, but you don't want to share. And I, I, I think people, like you said, don't know how to process it and don't know the resources that are out there to help themselves. But 
and how simple and and how simple it is to show up like just saying uh something like um how how are you doing today instead of saying how are you doing you know uh just simple little things that that connect uh I want to bring dinner. Can I stay and eat or do you want me to leave it off? You know, just very simple things can no, make such a difference, can't they? Such a difference. And you're so spot on. I, 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 I agree with you 100%. I really do. Of course, I may have erred in the other direction because one of my kids recently said, um, you know, mom, not everyone wants to talk about this as much as you do. (laughs) (laughs) So I may have made the opposite mistake, but I'll take it. (laughs) Well, you know what? I I feel that way, too, that um, this has given me an avenue to be able to speak about it uh, in a more of an open forum. And I know that not everybody agrees with that. But when I have a conversation with you or I have somebody who truly understands it, it's amazing how empowering it is. And it really helps me to move forward because I know I'm not alone. You know, here we can have a serious conversation, but we can laugh through it, too. And that's so important to me, too, that I can still be me in the conversation. Well, that brings up a good point that you've talked about in your book, which is the importance of of, uh, laughing and humor. Uh, totally agree. I, I was I never had a sense of humor before I went through that time <laughs> with my wife. I, uh, well, I guess I, I, I would laugh if someone else said something funny, sort right. of. <laughs> but <laughs> that that taught me how to laugh full out, how to how to make jokes. I'd never been good at that. I have to admit, though, a lot of it was gallows humor. Yes. And, and you know what, uh, you have, you have a good laugh, so you ought to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Laughter is essential, especially right now in this coronavirus uh, world. What a, what a cosmic joke we're in, aren't we? <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's so surreal. It's amazing. It really is. But, you know, as you talk about the coronavirus, I really feel that um, this experience that I had really has helped me to keep it in perspective with my my kids. I have my one daughter who's just graduating from college who's going to go to New York this summer, and she's home with me. But then my oldest daughter, who was in D.C. at the time, she um, and her fiancé, they came up to visit me uh, and stay with me. And they've been here now for a couple weeks, and they're going to stay really until things get better and turn. Um, what it has done is it, it's made sure, Hey, family first, which is most important, but also let's just take it day by day, be together, laugh together, have fun together as we go through these unsettled times. And it's been very special, but also it's been able, you know, it's, we talked about this previously, just how important it is taking things day by day, moment by moment. And, um, adaptation too. you know people will ask me am i am i better at grief because i am a grief counselor no but i do adapt quicker i do i do allow myself to move sooner uh and let myself feel bad long enough to feel better you know there are certain things that just uh i know from having not only experienced it myself, but then worked with lots of other people. There's no way out, is there? There's no way out. to go through. (laughs) But as soon as you come to acceptance of it, 
just like anything, um, I think you can move forward. You come to the acceptance of saying, hey, it happened to me. I can't have this pity party and I can't have it last too long. But the reality is every once in a while, I am going to have a pity party because it did happen to me. But I just make sure that as those things, as I continue to move forward, I don't let them uh, last too long. I make sure that they are um, experiences that, okay, maybe this day is going to be a tough day, but I can't have tomorrow be that tough day too. And I can't have it turn into days into weeks. Um, uh, I, I recently heard something, John, that intersects sure. with that. And it's a good place to close, which is um, you can visit the house of pity. Just don't, don't move in. <laughs> right on. Right on. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for being with me today. Cheryl, I really enjoyed it's been our a conversation. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great day and be safe. You too. And, and folks, you can find John's book by going to johnsardella.com. Next week, I'll have Nina Impala, author of Dearly Departed, What I Learned About Living from the Dying. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.